0: Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome once again to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and, of course, from around the globe. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, be it Spotify or iTunes or whatever. Uh, we keep you back up to date with all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Now, if you know gaming or even have a passing interest in gaming, you possibly know the name John Romero. Among his creations are Wolfenstein 3D, Doom and Quake, games that arguably changed the way we play to this very day. In advance of his appearance at Comic-Con in Dublin this weekend, he sat down for a chat with Niall Kitson to talk about his
1: career and how game development went from a process of weeks to years. I guess it's fair to say that you've sort of been in an interesting position of being influenced by the uh, classic arcade games like Space Invaders and Pac-Man, but not just in the sense that you've been able to play them, but also be directly inspired and able to put those influences into use pretty much as these games were being uh, released onto market. Would that be fair?
2: Um, (coughs) Let's see. Yeah, I mean, I was... I was playing them uh, in the seventies playing those games in the seventies and pac-man in nineteen eighty and uh, I mean I was still a kid but I was they made me want to learn how to make games and uh,
1: looking at how you were making those first games uh so what what sort of um topics or, or what sort of gameplay style attracted you. I mean, it, when you look at the very simple idea of Space Invaders, where it's just, you know, you're shooting at something or something very simple like Pac-Man, where, where you're working your way through a, through a maze, it's very easy to see these influences come together in your in your later work. But when you were sitting down to, to work on your first few projects, what kind of um, styles were you looking at uh, or were you sort of able to recreate?
2: Let's see. Well, adventure first you know colossal cave adventure was was the first kind of game i was trying i was trying to make an adventure game at the very beginning um and uh, after that i was trying to recreate a game called crazy climber where you climb the side of a building uh i was basically taking the things that i was playing in the arcade and seeing if i could Get good enough at programming to reproduce those on my computer. So a lot of those games were, uh, you know, arcade shoot 'em up games, but also the interesting games like Crazy Climber and Pac Man that had nothing to do with shooting.
1: I, I think part of what makes it such an interesting time uh, was that the barrier to entry was quite low when it when it came to pro, to uh, programming, and it was as much about. Being innovative in your ideas as being innovative in your sort of your technical ability.
2: Yeah, I mean the um, there was with the with the coming of home computers in the seventies, the barrier to entry was removed basically because it was you know it was government institutions and universities that were the the gatekeepers of computing power but when people had it at home you could just make whatever you want the same is true today you know anyone can make anything they want at home uh on their computer like they could in the 70s and you know that that's that's the that's the, the like the creation process has always been super accessible it was the publication process that was actually the barrier uh for a long time until the internet came basically happened in the mid 90s and then everybody can put their stuff on the internet
1: you've had quite an interesting uh, relationship with the publishing industry i mean you, you were involved in a magazine at one point
2: yeah several magazines <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, and for me sort of that um golden age tended to come with the, the magazine with the the disc on the cover or the cassette on the cover and you couldn't couldn't wait to to get it home and and try the, the free software of the month through your very crackly uh, C64 modem. Um, when you're working on uh, magazines like that and you're looking at the distribution model for games that came through those, you know, front cover discs or, or cassettes, was there sort of a, an aha moment for you personally where, where you were thinking, oh, do you know what, there's, there's actual capacity here that maybe you could work on something genuinely good and get it into people's hands?
2: Um I think we were I think Wolfenstein was probably uh the first game uh as a team that we made that we thought that you know we wanted to spend more time like whatever amount of time it took to make a game that was really good because before that we were on 2 month deadlines so we had to make a game in 2 months so we did that over and over and over again and we decided that we wanted to spend more time. And with Wolfenstein, we spent four months. <laughs> it's a bit of a difference, all right. Uh, it was double the time. <laughs> uh,
1: and it did bring together those those elements that uh, were so influential on you. I mean, sort of the the, the basic shooter, but also navigating through the maze, only taking it from the the top-down view to the to the ground view to, to and to 3D.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was fast. I think was the big big difference because even Wolfenstein had a world that was basically a maze that people had seen that kind of world for a long time uh, in the '80s. If you ever played Wizardry or Ultima or Might and Magic or Bard's Tale, you know you saw these ninety degree hall mazes. You know, like the labyrinth game with the ball and the mm. that you're trying to tilt the you're trying to tilt the maze to get the ball through it. That those those are the kind of mazes that all games had um, since the beginning of of you know electronic games. So when when uh, we made Doom, that's where that whole that whole design style completely changed.
1: I think Doom is such a a wonderful example of another um sort of landmark in gameplay if you wanted to sort of look at the the classic arcade uh games of your moving on to the the home computer um sort of and and the i guess the the likes of the Atari 2600 before it that bringing that um sort of lan uh element of gaming uh, into the into the front room not quite into sort of the in the way that the internet has connected us now but the, the ability to directly link up multiple computers um, it had a massive cultural impact on how people used to game as well uh, I think that it made gaming a, a bit more social
2: Yeah, that was that was one of the biggest changes that happened with um, Doom was the introduction of this high-speed gaming which is co-op play and deathmatch play uh, sold so many uh, network cards at computer stores and cable, and everybody was rushing to upgrade their computers so they could play together. And then people were having um, LAN parties on the weekends and bringing their computers to their friends' houses, and it got super, super social. And before, you know, before that, uh, when computers people started playing on computers it was always a like an antisocial mm. way of playing and before computers it was super social because when pl- people play board games they need someone else so un- unless you're playing solitaire you 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 play chess or checkers or or horseshoes golf it doesn't matter what it is you're always playing with somebody else so it's always multiplayer until computers arrived and then games became single player and then we helped to create put put it back into the multiplayer realm
1: you made mention there to uh, sort of how games like doom sort of prompted the sales of network cards I, I looking back at some of the landmark computers that you would have worked with I think the Apple II and porting games from the Apple II to the Commodore 64 was probably a, a very important time uh, in in uh, sort of home computer gaming uh, if you will because it did bring that experience of you know you can play as many games as you want into the home because games were generally pretty affordable at the time.
2: Yeah yeah and back then in the 80s uh, when somebody put out a game they needed to make it work on probably five different kinds of home computers and they were all different you know I think that. They shared the same processor, the 6502 processor, but their operating systems were totally different. So when you have the Atari 800, and the Commodore 64, and the Apple II, and then you possibly have the Radio Shack, you know, Model 3 or whatever, TRS-80, the the Coleco Coco computer, um, you name it, you know, people were wanting games ported to it. Mm. So a pro- it's a problem
1: that we don't have so much
2: anymore in PC gaming. That's oh, great. <laughs> so, yeah, and and it's not just the, um, it's not just that, but it's also just so so portable now. Uh, you know, graphics don't need to completely change format like they did back then. You couldn't take an Apple II graphic and put it on a Commodore because they have nothing to do with the the, scr- the structure of the screen. But now a JPEG or a PNG you know that's how people put graphics on the screen now so they're completely portable between things like macs and pcs or uh, cell phones they all use the same graphical formats so it makes it way easier
1: and even when we're looking uh, now towards virtual reality and people are looking more towards um, external gpus uh, just to give that that extra boost where required instead of going out and buying a, a new video card wholesale
2: Oh, yeah, I love it. I love the idea of having it uh, external, maybe even having it in the monitor. You buy a really cool monitor that's got a really great graphics card in it, you know, just because these external GPUs are typically for laptops. And, you know, whenever you want to plug your laptop into a monitor as a, you know, you want to just kind of set it down on a desk and plug a monitor into it. It'd be nice if the monitor had an a eGPU in it as well, to, instead of having another box on the table. Yeah,
1: I guess sort of having uh, enough table real estate... Uh- Is becoming a bigger burden than uh, sort of what is actually under the hood when you when you buy your PC first. Um, Just sort of backtracking a little bit to that that sort of sweet spot where you were working in the nineties, going from uh, Wolfenstein to the to Doom. uh, and then on to quake, what sort of um lessons were you coming across along the way? I mean you made mention to uh, to speed there which which was you know absolutely massive in getting people into doom but uh you I imagine you came across a few
2: other technical roadblocks as well There are a ton of them <laughs> you know unless unless you 're a programmer there 's no way to understand them but there there are some books that have been recently released. By a writer named Fabian Sangard and what he's done Is he's taken the uh, The source Code that we wrote and and Freely released and he's Written a book he's written Books that basically take let's say Wolfenstein 3D and And he gives the reader uh, An education on The state of the art During that year And what computers were like And how we had to write the game to take full advantage of the hardware that was around at that time so people could understand why it was such a a big deal when it when we made it versus today where there's just tons of speed you know back then there wasn't any and uh and he also wrote a, a doom book and he's making a quake book so each one of those has the full explanation of the hardware as it existed that year that we were releasing the game so we could actually people could understand maybe <laughs> you know what kind of what kind of tricks we had to pull to get these games to go that fast,
1: but you also had that fan input as well where people were starting to develop their their own custom levels as well
2: yeah, I mean us making our games open uh, really you know it opened the door to modding, and that was tremendous. Yeah, you know, it was just like one of the best things we ever did was open our games up to people to let them extend the game the way that, that they wanted to to extend it or just because they want to be creative, they have a platform to be creative on. And that was just huge. You know, that concept and, and ability changed. I mean that's expected by a lot of games nowadays. You know, if it needs to be modded. You need to make a game that's moddable.
1: Mm. Do you think
2: that's something that's uh missing from
1: the current generation of consoles where things are locked into uh ecosystems that you know you you can play but and you can you know play online but it's very much a controlled experience
2: well they're um they're opening up some now, so there have been uh mods available for certain console games but only through scripts. And now um, they're kind of moving beyond that to open it up even more. So, uh, so Microsoft and Sony know that people are crazy for mods, and uh, and so they're just trying to figure out a safe, walled, secure approach to allowing games um, more space for um, for users to download content off the internet, um, and then and then just run it. You know, and keep it from destroying any other content or the hardware. Do you think
1: that there might be an element of, um, I know, I guess you might say, brand preservation? That uh, if somebody buys a, a Microsoft game, they expect a certain level of um, protection, I suppose, for for younger. Uh, users um therefore it, it might make sense to um uh, make games sort of less customizable if you will because one of the nice selling points of doom uh i guess nice and inverted commas was the uh was the level of violence and sort of the, the nature of the enemies you were encountering
2: uh yeah obviously if we are releasing the game ourselves we don't have to answer to anybody else so um, unless we go through a company like Microsoft or, or Sony, then we have to we have to heed their rules and change the game accordingly. But uh, we can still make what we want and release what we want out there freely. He uh, can still do that today. You know, he could do it back then. He can do it today.
1: Uh, very, very often, some artists and, and developers sort of get not not so much criticised, but noted for being too early to the party uh, when it comes to certain uh, technologies. I, I think you were too early to the party when it came to mobile gaming. I mean, if you were, if you were working on
2: something yeah, for started, the Nokia n Engage, I, I guess that sort yeah. of is yeah, yeah, before the Engage even, I was making games for the um, for the uh, the Compact. I pack, um, which was a pocket PC that was basically a prototype of the iPhone. Um, it was a, it really great. It ran Windows, like WinCE, and, uh, you know, it still had a stylus back then. But it had a 16-bit screen. You know, it had 320 by 200 and 60-bit color. Um, it was... I think that the, some of the nicest iPads they had 400 megahertz ARM processors. So they were really fast and they could play games like great, you know, just like today's uh, today's games on on uh, iPhones. So it was it was a little early because the presentation and the, the user interface was not as good as the iPhone. So it really lacked that. Um and then Apple just, you know, revolutionized the space.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it was a case of the, the hardware, not necessarily have anything wrong with it. It's just being pitched to the wrong space. I mean, you know, PDAs were all, were always seen as business devices. The uh, Nokia N-Gage just uh, for whatever reason just didn't find its its niche. It was horrible. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I made a shooter on that. I did a port of Red Faction to the N-Gage and had the first Bluetooth wireless death match on a cell phone. Um, and it was fun to, to make it, but it was so underpowered. It was a 100 megahertz processor, and it was just a weird phone. You know, it didn't have good feel to mm-hmm. the controls. And um, it also just had the worst way of putting games in and out of it at the beginning, where you had to pop the battery out to put the game in
1: not not what you'd call a great user experience no yeah yeah it was bad <laughs> uh, one of the things that we're looking at increasingly as the gaming industry expands and depending who you ask it has eclipsed the uh, the movie industry um at, as we speak um how important do you think story is in gaming? There seems to be a couple of divergent schools of thought on this, that, you know, there there will always be a place for the, the problem-based um, uh, sort of, again, I don't want to go back to Pac-Man, but that, that sort of simple problem-solving uh, approach to gaming versus the contemporary approach, I guess, you, you have now, where narrative is so ingrained uh, into, into gaming. Well...
2: Um gaming is bigger than all of hollywood and the music industry combined it's it's bigger than than everything else um and story is you know kind of part of the reason why it's so huge is because story in games is like a sliding scale you can have none or you can have it fully on rails it's a, only a story You can go between those extremes with games where you can't do that with a movie. A movie is a story, but games can be a complete experience that enables stories. You know, when you play Minecraft, you are creating a story as you play it and you'll tell somebody what you did and you're telling them a story based on your play experience Um, versus a game that is fully scripted and everybody sees the same thing you know um and uh but it could still be amazing you know like uh what remains of edith finch is an amazing story you know narrative a narrative game uh told you know about as good as it can be at this time um and it's super unique and you'll never see anything like it in a movie and when you play it you'll know that the boundaries of of the narrative keep on getting pushed further beyond the old media types that people have been exposed to for decades. So there's a lot of new things happening in games and story is definitely a part of it. You know, if you're not if you're not watching and experiencing if you're not watching the story, you're creating the story.
1: So then, I guess to to finish our conversation, what sort of style of gameplay is interesting to you at the moment?
2: Pretty much all of it um, i'm not the only kind I'm not interested in is sports games, um, just because it's it's just not appealing to me it's like recreating something that is I guess I don't. I'm not interested in sports, so it's you know recreating something that I don't care about. Um, <laughs> but other than that, I like all other kinds of games. You know, like doesn't matter what it is. I really like everything.
0: And that was John Romero talking to Nile Kitts. and John, of course, appearing at Comic Con in Dublin this weekend. That's it for our show this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more. Grab them at our website, techcentral.ie or just tune in every week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1X. Tom. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening as always and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie.